Hey there, welcome to the Coffee and Pens podcast. Today I'm talking to Michelle Hansen. In July of this year, she published her first book, Deploy Empathy. It's a book about interviewing customers. In this chat, she describes her writing, why newsletters were essential, and what she did to make this a social and not a lonely process. Stay tuned, you're in for a treat. Hey Michelle, thank you for joining me on the Coffee and Pen podcast. Can you start by telling me a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. Um, so I am co-founder of Geocodio, which is a software as a service company. Uh, started out as a side project seven years, seven and a half years ago oh. now. Uh, went full-time on it four years ago. Um, I'm also co-host of Software Social. Um, which is a podcast between me and another founder, Colleen Schnettler, um, where we talk every week about what we're working on. Um, and then most recently, I am also the author of Deploy Empathy, which is a practical guide to interviewing customers. Perfect. So today we'll be talking mainly about Deploy Empathy, your book. But before we get started with that, one question our, le- our listeners likes, what's your favorite coffee? I actually don't drink coffee. Um, I drink tea. Um, so, cause I like, I, I feel like whenever I have coffee, like I am like bouncing off the walls for like three or four hours and then I crash so hard. But for me, tea is like the extended release version. Um, and so, um, if you want to know uh, my favorites, you know, caffeine delivery mechanism of choice, that would be tea. Um, it would specifically be gunpowder green tea, but I do vary my, uh, tea on a, on a daily basis. So this morning I had Earl Grey cream, but yeah, I'm a tea drinker. Yeah. I used to drink a lot of tea uh, before I moved to coffee. Um, I do have some (laughs) Earl Grey at home as well. Okay. So Michelle, you're from the U S is that right? Yeah. But I think you've booked from somewhere in Europe. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I live in Denmark now. Oh, cool. What made you change? Uh, so my husband is originally from Denmark. Um, and through a long series of events, basically, we decided to move here last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so we basically moved from minutes outside of Washington, D.C. to a farm in the Danish countryside. Wow. That's a big difference. Big time difference yeah. as well. <laughs> was that during the process of writing your book so that was before um so we moved here July of 2020 Uh and I started working on the book in February of this year okay so you wrote it pretty quickly yeah I people are telling me that I've never written a book before so I don't really know how long it takes (laughs) Uh yeah I talked to a few people like one who wrote a book in 30 days and then this 14-year-old oh. who wrote a book in about 48, 49 days. But apart from these two exceptions, most people take about one year, maybe half a year, year and a half. Um, yeah, wow. So yeah, half a year is, it's about what it took you, right? Half a year is about the Yeah, I guess from like middle, end of, end of February to the book was basically done the beginning of July um that's when sort of like the pdf version was final and then the the paperback version was available at the end of July so it was about five months I guess uh-huh did you do any beta reading in that period oh yes tons so 
I started the book as a newsletter. So actually I was, so, so I, for a long time, I was getting questions from other founders about how to interview customers. And I basically felt like I didn't have one good place to send them that was both rigorously grounded in solid methodologies, but was also approachable enough for people that did not have a UX or product background. Mm -hmm. And so I was just sort of sending them these like long emails or to have calls with people. And I was just like, you know, read this chapter, read this blog post. Like it was, it felt very jumbled. And I remember I was out for a walk one day and I was like, maybe I should write a book. And it's like, but everybody who's ever written a book has told me like, don't write a book because it sounds very like lonely. And, and, you know, we were like mid lockdown and I was like, I do not need any more loneliness in my life. And, but I kept thinking about it and I was like, you know, I really want to do this. I really need a place to be able to send people when they ask me these questions. And I was like, you know what? I can write a newsletter. I can just write posts about all of these different topics that I uh, struggle to send resources um, to, to have resources for. And then maybe it turns into a book. Maybe it doesn't. But worst case scenario, I have solved my own problem because then I have one place where I can send people where instead of sending this whole like jumble of things, mm-hmm. I can just say, go read the newsletter archive. That's everything that you need to get started. And yeah. so that's kind of where it came from. Um, and so throughout all of that, the, the newsletter readers were the, the, I mean, they were the alpha readers, right? And, um, and I also went into a beta reading phase as well later on. Your book talks a little bit about your questions shouldn't always be directly or what you want to know. So that you don't ask for what, what do you struggle with, for example, you try to like find a way to, to make them tell about that. Mm-hmm. And Actually, the question I wanted to ask afterwards is why did you decide to write this book? But while asking about your beta reading, you already answered that question. Mm-hmm. So that I, I, it I, often I happens. Was, yeah, that was just playing <laughs> around in my mind and, and I got me a bit off my feet and now I got a bit distracted because of that because it's, it's quite funny. <laughs> You're um, using my own tactics on me. I love it. Yeah, and I didn't even know. Awesome. <laughs> yes, yes, you're already internalizing it. You... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So, so moving on, do you think that this new setting of moving to Denmark helped you with your writing process? You know, I have wondered whether I would, would have written the book if I was, you know, if we hadn't have moved. Um, you know, I'll say one thing that kind of the immediate precursor to it in the fall, I started mentoring a uh, mastermind group through Founder Summit which mm-hmm. is an online um, group where we met every week and everybody was in the hot seat. And, you know, I told the, so I told the group that, you know, sort of my, you know, my, my functional area was product management and my exp- expertise within that was in customer research and talking to customers and that they could, you know, just any questions they had on that, they could, they could ask me. And so it was kind of through the course of that and our, you know, emails back and forth and our conversations where I really realized that I did not have that resource. And mm-hmm. at the same time, because I was in Europe and still most of the people I talked to are in the US or Canada, um, I couldn't really as easily just jump on a call with someone for half an hour like I could before, because now, you know, scheduling something with someone uh, in the US is, is just requires a lot of advanced planning. And so I think that's kind of where the genesis of the idea came from. 
Um, you know, it's, it's always an interesting question to be like, if you change this one decision in your life, would you have made all the rest of the decisions after that? I don't know, but I think being here definitely contributed because otherwise I would not have been in that. Like, I think our group, our group was Europe and Middle East people. Um, and that group was so incredibly supportive, um, throughout the whole writing process. So, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah. So like a big factor that you think has been the people around you, like the people that you connected with yes. because of that change. Uh, how about the, yeah. the different setting, you know, going from very busy life, I suppose, around Washington DC to like a more easy setting, like on a farm and everything. Yeah. I mean, I think being disconnected from my physical community was probably pretty important in that because it made me seek out community in other ways. Um, like I had such a great support network of friends and family where we were before I was, um, super involved with our neighborhood. Um, and I was very involved with volunteering and even, even through COVID, um, was organizing things for the neighborhood. And so, I think if I had still been there, I still would have been pouring that energy into that. And I don't know if, you know, if I had still had that, that those close ties, I don't know if I would have done things to seek out new community through, uh, you know, online and, and through the community on Twitter. And, and I probably, I don't know if I would have started my podcast. Um, cause you know, that's where like, my co-host and I, we used to be basically be neighbors. She lived like two two neighborhoods over. Um, and we used to meet up at a coffee shop before COVID. And, um, and of course we stopped with COVID. And then once I moved abroad, the podcast was as much a way to sort of be transparent about our own founder journeys and hopefully inspire other people or just make it seem less mysterious to other people. Um, but also it was just forced us to keep talking to each other every week. Otherwise we would like lose touch, not being in the same yeah. place anymore. I don't know if the podcast would have happened had, had I not moved. I don't know if all, you know, like, it's just like, where do you, where do you pull back the dominoes? Um, uh-huh. I don't think, I mean, I know a lot of writers sort of wax poetically about a rural setting and being, you know, in nature and everything. I don't know if that really played too much of a role. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, there certainly there really weren't those other social distractions going on for me. Like I had to really work to find a community in this. Mm-hmm. Is your usual writing time in the morning, right before work? I don't have a normal writing time. So when I was writing the newsletter, I was just writing as I was excited about things and as they were coming up in my everyday conversations with people. Um, so I would just write on whatever topic I was excited about, um, like pretty often, especially during the intense, like writing phase of the newsletter, um, I would basically, you know, sort of do my regular work day as much as I could. Um, and then, you know, put our daughter to bed and then I would crawl into bed with my laptop and just have fun. I mean, the great thing about writing the newsletter in the, uh, the rough draft in the newsletter was that there was no pressure on it because, Uh I find that opening up a, you know, a blank Google, Google doc is, uh, quite intimidating. And I'm like, Oh God, I have no idea what to write about. And I did that at the very beginning. And I was like, ah, this isn't going to work, but writing a newsletter 
it was just writing an email. And it was just like, I'm just writing an email. Like, it's just no big deal. I didn't edit them. I didn't fuss over them. It was like, I'm just writing an email. I write a million emails every day. I know how to write an email. Like I'm just writing an email. I'm not writing a book. And that was so good because then I felt like I was getting things done and I was writing it for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't writing it to, you know, to impress anyone or, or anything, which is, I feel like a problem I've had with blogging in the past where it's just, I don't know, my, my worst writing is when I'm trying to impress someone, yeah. uh, or, you know, seem smart or whatever. And, um, and so I was just, I'm just writing an email and I wrote about what I was excited about. I didn't write in any particular order. And then mm -hmm. because I wrote it as a newsletter, I was getting feedback from people from the very beginning. And even if it was just someone to be like, Hey, like, I love this, like, or someone sharing a story about it or someone like challenging it or someone disagreeing with it. Like I was getting all of that feedback right away. And I think that combination of writing what I, I was excited about feeling accomplished because I was sending something out and then also getting that immediate feedback was so helpful for the velocity of the book. I mean, it got to a point where people had to, lots of people asked me to stop sending them so frequently because I was writing too much uh -huh. and I had to like scale it down. Cause there was a period of time where I sent like one every day for a couple of weeks and people were like, I love this, but I have a pile of them in my inbox. Can you like can, can you not <laughs> you know but that's great because it means they want to read everything right yes they were exactly. re like reading one and then the other day okay I'm busy I'm not going to read it I'll pick it up again like next next week or something that means they're like half and half interested if they ask you to yeah stop, it's because they want to read everything it was a good it was a good signal yeah exactly uh-huh did you write an email about half the book the entire book I want to say like 60% of the book um, went out through email. So I remember when I felt like, you know, I felt like I was done and I finally threw everything together in a Google doc and I even like printed it to PDF and like sent it to someone. And that, that was pretty surreal. Just like seeing it on someone's Kindle was like, oh my God, it's a book. Like what? <laughs> And at the beginning, I was very confident that it was like complete at that point. Uh -huh. And then the more I worked on it, it was not complete. <laughs> um, and then that's kind of when I, I actually, I took a break from it. I didn't write anything for like two or three weeks. And instead I spent that time interviewing people who had been reading the newsletter. So I ended up interviewing about 30 uh, or 30 more people who had been reading the newsletter. Um, I also threw the, the compiled rough draft up on help this book which is mm -hmm. a platform from um, the writer of the mom test yeah. um, who wrote a new book on, on writing helpful books um, that was really helpful, like getting so much feedback. Cause it wasn't just like, you know, people correcting like, you know, capitalization or whatever. Like it was like, Hey, this really resonated or this is confusing or I love this bit. Like, you know, this section doesn't really work. Like this is super useful, like um, getting so much of that feedback from people. Um, and so between the newsletter readers and people who had read the version on help this book, I interviewed 30 people. Um, and, and, but during that time, because I was spending so much time interviewing them, I didn't really do, you know, the only sort of writing I did at that point was really taking notes on yeah. those calls. Okay, but everything of this, like from the newsletter to the break, happened between February and July. Ap 
April. So yeah, so the newsletter and it was from end of February to like, I think I finished the newsletter in early April, but respecting people's desire to not have a pile of them in their inbox. I just, I wrote a bunch of them and then I scheduled them out until the middle of May. Um, But as far as I was concerned, I was done with a rough draft by like middle of April, I think. And then I got the book up on help this book in middle end of April. And then, so it was doing, that was really the beta reading period um, from like middle of April to end of May. And this is kind of when the, you know, so I did the interviewing period and didn't really write much for a couple of weeks. And then kind of when the middle of May came around, I basically, I started working on it more during work hours. Um, and I feel like pretty much every week for like six weeks, I did a major surgical rewrite of the book. Like, okay. and it was that was the most tiring part of the entire process, I would say, um, because it was just every week I was like, no, this is a problem. This doesn't work. Where is mm-hmm. this section going to work? Like, oh, I love this section, but like, is it not working? Like, and just massively rearranging things and just, yeah, I, 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 I saw someone, someone said at one point that, you know, edits are not minor cuts, they're surgery. And I was like, oof, I feel that. Like I was like rearranging the organs, you know? Um, so, and it was like every week and it was just like, I knew like on the weekend I was like going into it. I was like, I'm, I'm going to end up re- completely rearranging and tearing this book apart again, aren't I? Yes. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> so that went on through the middle of June or so. And then it kind of finally got to a point where I was like, okay, this is, this is pretty much done. And we were also coming up on the summer break uh, for school. So I was like, I need to have mm-hmm. this done before the summer break. And I was starting to get feedback from people who had not been part of that newsletter podcast group who were basically sort of outside of my, um, you know, sort of most supportive um, people yep. who they were coming across the book and really excited about it. And, and it was resonating with them and resonating in the way that I, I had sort of dreamed it would. Um, and so then I was like, okay, you know what, this book has done the job that I set out for it to do. Like I need to wrap this thing up. So middle of June, I hired a proofreader, did proofreading, made the changes. Then, so by early July, it was basically done. And then it took a couple of weeks. I didn't have a cover. So it took a couple of weeks to, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of, I had to get ISBN numbers, like all the sort of administrative stuff and all the details basically that weren't writing um, you know, the formatting, whatnot. And then, and then the paperback was available at the end of July. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that editing was the hardest part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think it's cause like I would do those major edits and then I would think it had worked or like, I knew there was still some issues, but I was like, okay, that's not as bad as when I started this week. Uh-huh. And then I would think about it and like, no, it's still bad. Like I, it still sucks. Like I need to, this is not, this is not working. Um, and I, you know, and I was doing that myself. I had a lot of friends helping with that editing process. I actually, I recruited friends sort of strategically, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, so who is, you know, who is a friend who I know is going to be a, like a ruthless editor who has written a lot themselves. So I had a friend who had written a couple of books 
who I brought in to, to edit it. Cause I knew that she, she was going to be ruthless and she was, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, and then I had another friend, um, do a sensitivity read. There was somebody from the sort of community that emerged around this, um, who I had never met before. I've actually still never even like spoken to in, you know, on video or anything who ended up doing a ton of editing of the book, which was amazing. And I'm so grateful to him for that. Um, of course I had everybody on help this book. And, and then I also had friends come in as sort of like technical reviewers of, of, of the content of the book, like people who were user research experts, you know, I had, I had them read through it sort of for like technical accuracy. Um, of course, lots of friends kind of coming through. Um, I had a friend who was a really good, like literary writer who, um, who also kind of did a sort of, sort of a look at it from that, like a sort of flow perspective. Mm-hmm. It's a self-published book, but it was not a solo effort by any means. And I think when I was setting out to do it, I, I, so I had just been reading The Box, which is a book about the history of container shipping, which is so good, by the way. Like if you, like me, were totally enthralled by the this, this ship stuck in the Suez, you will love The Box. Um, and, but the book starts out with, um, the acknowledgements and the author says, you know, like writing a book is a really long, lonely process. And I was, and, and I was like, oh man, like if I write a book, like I, I, it has to be a social process. Like I Mm -hmm. can't, I, it's just, it can't be lonely. I can't do this alone. I can't lock myself in a room for a year and do it. Like also like I have a family, like I just, you know, I have to like, I have to make this work in my life. And so, so yeah, it was, um, it was just a huge community emerged around it and it was, um, it is, you know, pretty amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. I think many people need to hear that the book doesn't have to be a solo effort. It can be a social process. Yeah. I think that's, that, that held me back from writing a book for a long time. Like I had sort of always had a dream of at some point writing a book. Like I used to say, like, there's a book in me somewhere. I just don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the fact that writers talk about how lonely it is, which is like, you know, they're, they're allowed to talk about that. Like I encourage people to talk about their experience. I don't want to say that they shouldn't. Um, mm-hmm. but for me, that made me not want to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and then, so deciding I am going to do it, but I'm going to do it on my own terms. Um, and, and that was one of those things. Um, I also intentionally didn't find a publisher because I talked to some people who had publishers and it didn't sound like the kind of experience I wanted. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm going to do this, but it's, it's going to be on my own terms. Like I, it's going to be a social process. It's going to be the one where I am in the the driver's seat on this. Like I am in control of, you know, how much it's marketed and and how Mm -hmm. much time I spend on it. You know, you, you can make those choices. Yeah. That's important. Is there anything that you would do differently if you wrote a second book? you know people have asked me like what are you going to do for your next book and like and I'm like I I (laughs) I can't even think about a second book at this Mm -hmm. point (laughs) um I I honestly haven't thought about what I would do differently because I have not thought about writing a second book okay that's fair enough that's fair enough I feel like it's sort of like asking somebody with a newborn, like, you know, whether they think about their second child and it's like, oh, there, like, hold on. I'm still barely getting any sleep from this one. Like, <laughs> yeah, that hits home. <laughs> right. But more about your book, maybe this time about interviewing. 
you mentioned that you, for your book, you talked to about 30 people. How do you decide to evolve like the questions from the first person to the last person? Because I, I suppose you're not asking the same questions to all 30. So I kind of had, a, I had a couple of questions that I wanted to ask, and then I kind of let the conversation go from there. You know, some of the things I say in my book is like that the questions you add, like you come in with on a script, yes, you have things that you're trying to learn, but really what you're doing is you're priming someone to talk about a topic. You're showing them that you care about it and that they, that they can be open with you about that. And then so the questions are sort of almost beside the point because once you get them talking about something and they trust that you care and are listening and you're simply following up with what they're saying, yeah, you don't really need to, to ask them a whole ton of like question questions. But so the questions I went into, um, I believe the first one was, so what led you to sign up for the newsletter in the first place? And I was just trying to understand like, like what are they trying to do? What do they think customer interviewing can do for them? Uh I also wanted to hear about other practical books they had read that they really liked, that they felt were very practical and easy to run with. Because it was very important to me that the book is as practical as possible. And this is partly for the reader experience and partly for my own experience of it, because like I run a company, I already have a full-time job. I do not, I like actively do not want to be a consultant. I do not want people to hire me to do their customer research. Mm -hmm. First of all, I think it's very important that they do them, do it themselves and they develop that empathy for their customers themselves. But also I simply don't have time. And so if I wrote the book to be as practical and easy to apply as possible, then people wouldn't even need to talk to me to Uh apply it because they could just do it themselves. And so I really wanted to understand what are other books that they felt like did a good job of teaching them something. um, And then they could run with it without a ton of extra direction. So that was really interesting. And that was really helpful in how I, and how I structured the book and how I like thought about different pieces of it um, to understand, you know, how they like to learn. Uh Um, But from that first question of, you know, what led you to do this anyway? And, And I would sort of ask them, have you, you know, sort of, and I would say sort of bearing in mind that most people have told me that they have a pile of these in their inbox and that's totally fine. Like, have you been able to apply any of the concepts in, in your work or in your personal life? Can you just kind of like, you know, sort of just like walk me through, like, have you been able to use it at all? Mm-hmm. And if I had heard from people, no, I haven't been able to use it. That's kind of a red flag. But then usually people would have at least one, if not like a lot of different ways they were applying it. And it was so interesting. It was everything from product managers to people starting their own SaaS to consultants who are like business advisors, like uh, this whole copywriters, like all these types of, of readers that I had not even considered when I started writing. Because when I started writing, I thought I was writing for developers and makers. That was the original, the original subtitle was a practical guide to talking to customers for developers and makers, which is uh-huh. quite a mouthful. Um, but I, so I thought I was really speaking for this sort of, you know, this like indie hacker kind of crowd. Yeah. Um, and then it turned out it was like, it was technical writers, copywriters, you know, advisors, like this whole, you know, like product leaders, like this whole range of people had a need for a book like this. Yeah. Um, and so it really guided the development of the book. Um, and, and it was, a 
mean, it was also maybe my favorite part of the entire writing process to hear how the book had helped people. And it wasn't even really a book yet. And to have people say like, please make it a book. I want to buy this for my team. When is it going to be a book? Like, when can I buy it? That, that was so validating. And I think at that point when I was going, I mean, I didn't know it, but I was sort of going into the sort of in software, we talk about the trough of sorrow. I was going into the equivalent of the writer's trough of sorrow with all of that editing and Uh like having their voices in my head so fresh and still talking to them and, you know, writing something and then giving them feedback on it after I had changed something based on what they had talked about, like that really kept me going through that difficult part, like having their voices in my head from our conversations and then Uh also continuing the conversation with them as well. Uh So there was a lot of encouragement from these conversations as well. Yeah. And I, and you know, that's something that I, you know, sometimes people are afraid when they interview their customers that the people are just going to complain at them. But I find that usually people are so enthusiastic and they're so like, they feel so like honored that someone took the time to understand mm-hmm. what they're trying to do, that they are really appreciative. And it's such a nice antidote to doing customer support and someone being like, this thing is broken. Like it's down. Like, I hate this. Like everything is terrible. Everything is on fire. Having someone be like, before your product, this took us weeks and it was so expensive. And now we do it in 15 minutes. And I'm so grateful. Like, like that keeps you going. And so for me during the writing process, that really that really kept me going. Yeah, I've noticed from from these podcasts as well that the hard part about the podcast is not to get your guests talking because people love talking about their books, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask if there's anything in particular of advice that you would love to give authors about interviewing. Oh, so I would say that it's not just the questions you ask, it's how you ask them is so important and making the other person feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And maybe the most important question that you can ask is a question that actually sounds like you're closing the interview, which I always schedule for halfway through the time I have Mm -hmm. allotted, which is, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I've learned so much from you. Is there anything else you think I should know? And letting it hang until it's uncomfortable and letting the other person fill the silence. And this is actually something I learned from um, someone who used to work for Terry Gross, who is uh, in the U.S. an NPR news show host. She hosts an interview show. Okay. And I, I was at a talk by someone who, who used to be a producer for her. And she said that, that she will find that after she, she asks a question and then just lets it hang that she gets the most interesting parts of the interview at that point. And I tend to find too, that even an interview that feels like taking blood out of a stone, like if I, once I ask that question and I just let it hang and I elevate them to the position of teacher, mm-hmm. um, which is also something from Robert Cialdini, the, the marketing psychology expert, the interview can completely turn on that point. And because they've been primed to, to talk about the topic, even if it's something, you know, as boring as sending invoices, right? Like maybe this is something that they talk, they do all the time and nobody has ever asked them about. Uh-huh. Um, then the interview just, just goes from there and they just take it. And then at that point, all you're doing is steering. And, you know, and I always want to stress to people that, you know, getting people to open up doesn't mean that you're letting them talk about everything, right? Like you don't want to hear about everything going on in your life. And you can still say, you know, can you go back to that thing you said a minute ago? I want to hear more about 
whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Like you're still steering it, but in a way that makes them feel like they are the ones in control of the conversation. Yeah. That's a little bit what I wanted to do with this question. So is there anything else you want to add? And then you mentioned this <laughs> thing about is there anything else? So I was trying to apply what I learned from the book. Um, what I did wrong is that this is not halfway. This is a little bit behind, over halfway the interview. Um, but it's <laughs> you, you did give like the part of information that I did find the most valuable in the book. So maybe, you know, it just proves that what you wrote is, is correct. Um, and moving on from that, I usually ask this after the interview, but I want to do it on camera. Um, I'd like you to tell me how I'm doing so far. I think you're doing great. And I can tell that you had read it. You know, you were saying earlier that you were trying to use some of the tools from the book. And then you actually sort of, it sounds like you almost kind of tripped in your head because you were trying to do what you were normally doing. And then you're like, oh, wait, no, I I was going to do that other thing. And it's so normal, especially when you're first starting to do this, to Uh notice that like, oh, shoot, I was supposed to do something else. Like, no, it wasn't. Okay. I wasn't supposed to interrupt them right there. Or like, like, you know, I should like, that's totally normal. I still find myself at times like getting too excited about what they're saying or, or whatever it is. Um, it's totally normal to make mistakes like that. Mm-hmm. But what's really shows that you're learning it is that you noticed it. That is what uh, you should hold on to from that, that you noticed it because then that you noticed it the next time it will be easier. Yeah. I noticed that I still give too many options so instead of like asking the question and stop. Prompt. And I, yeah. Shouldn't do yeah. that. Let's finish with a few questions about writing. Okay. Um, so what would be your tips about writing for a first-time author? It's so funny because I don't know if I, I feel qualified to give other people writing advice because I've only written one book. <laughs> I mean, you know, for, for me, I think one of the most valuable pieces of write, writing advice that I received was from Joel Hooks, who said, just write it just write it for yourself. Don't edit it before you send it out. Don't send it to anyone first. Like just get it out there, get it in front of people, get it out there earlier than you think you should. Um, but write it, like write it for yourself, you know, write what feels right to you. You know, like, I think there's a difference between, you know, sending out the newsletter and sending it out to people versus like sending it out to, you know, each chapter to a couple of friends as I go, because I feel like that is sort of more feels like judgment, even though it's helpful Mm -hmm. or like criticism, but like the sending it out in the newsletter was like, people were like excited for it in a very different way. And they weren't in an, in an editorial role. Um, they were as sort of like along for the journey, which is a very different dynamic. And I think that was so valuable because when I have written before, I just felt so self-conscious and I was trying to just make everything perfect before I open it up. And I was afraid if it wasn't perfect, then, you know, nobody would read it, but you know what? Spoiler alert. Nobody read it anyway. Um, it wasn't until I started writing in public that people really started reading what I was writing. I mean, it still surprises me that people were reading what I wrote. Like I just, from so many years of blog posts that I, you know, sweated over for a month and then landed with an absolute thud mm-hmm. um, to have people be excited about what I wrote is just, yeah, it's kind of befuddling to me still. There's um, something important there. I think that's momentum. So people mm-hmm. get excited because there's momentum. It's not just mm-hmm. one blog post and there it stops. It's like one newsletter after another. Mm-hmm. And for me too, 
Like it was like, I, I was getting that sense of accomplishment every day or every other day. And I was getting that feedback from people. And it, that encouraged me to keep going when I wrote something, even if one person replied out of the, you know, I don't know, in the beginning, it was maybe like 20 or 30 people on the newsletter, like one person replied, it was like, okay, like that, like that hit, that was good. Or like, I would write something and I wouldn't hear anything, but then I would get a flurry of signups. So I knew that people were forwarding it to their friends. Like, like mm-hmm. getting those little dopamine hits was so, so helpful. I would not have written the book. I don't think I ever would have finished it if I had just opened a Google doc and just tried to bang it out and mm-hmm. forced myself to be at the computer for 45 minutes at 6am every morning. Like I just, that just would not have worked for me. Okay, final question then. What is your secret? My secret is people. It's community. It's making it a social process. And, you know, I think if you're writing something and whether it's a, a practical book like mine, or even I've, I've heard that there are, uh, you know, romance book writers who are writing their books in this fashion to, I mean, heck, even in the, in the old days, books were often released as serials and they would be released one chapter at a time. And even, mm-hmm. you know, I did, I think Dickens books were written like that too. Like they would be released, right. you know, sort of on a weekly or monthly basis as a pamphlet, right? Like bring people into the process early. It's so scary to do it, to like open your baby to the world for people's opinions and everything else. But that, that this made a world of difference for the process for me to make it a social process because I got momentum, I got feedback, I got encouragement. And, um, and I think it made marketing the book easier too, because when I, I put it on product hunt a couple of weeks ago, to my huge surprise, it was number one on product hunt and people pay consultants thousands of dollars to be number one on product hunt. And it's like, I I'm not anybody like, I'm not a blue check mark on Twitter. Like, like people don't really know who I am. Like I, to, to have my book go to that point and to have people all over the world, lifting it up, um, at that point was amazing. And I, that never would have happened had I just written this book in a Google doc, you know, made a PDF, like, you know, like just, if that had been the first time the world had seen my book, like that would not have happened, but everybody was a part of the process and, and wanted to bring it to the world too. And it's just, um, it really made a difference. Yeah. And I'm just so grateful for everybody who, uh, has been, (laughs) it has just been the most surreal and amazing experience. I'm just so grateful. Awesome. Okay. Before we go, where can people find out more about you and your book? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at MJW Hansen. That's Hansen with an E-N. Um, and the book website is deployempathy.com where you can get links to the paperback, the PDF. I'm also doing the audiobook as a private podcast. So kind of like the newsletter, I'm releasing a couple of chapters of the audiobook per week and you can yeah find out more there. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, this was Michelle Hansen from Deploy Empathy. I hope you picked up a thing or two about interviewing customers and potential readers of your book. If you want to learn more about this topic, also listen to the fourth episode with April Dunfoot, or of course, by Deploy Empathy. My main takeaways are that it's about finding their challenges without prompting. 
ask for clarification. Tell them their job sounds challenging. Or just leave a long pause until they go deeper and deeper about the subject. I'll be looking to implement some of the strategies in future interviews. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and check out duffinpens.com slash michelle-hansen for show notes and more. Oh, and stay tuned for one more minute of a funny blooper. I felt that was a bit of a stare-off at some points at the end because I know you wait for people to reply and I was trying to apply that. I was waiting for you to reply and it's just like, hmm, who's going to reply first? <laughs> you know, it's actually one of my tricks is to uh, only interview people over the phone because then you don't get that visual feedback from someone and then it's more likely that the person you're interviewing will be like, this is awkward, this is awkward. Okay, let me say something, uh-huh. which is so valuable. Yeah, and even though I was interviewing you at some point, it was like, hmm, she's just waiting for me to reply right now. <laughs> <laughs>